0: This morning we are going to be in Judges chapter 3, so the first thing I want to do is invite you to turn over there and invite you to grab a Bible at the center of the aisle. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take one of the ones that we provided at the center of each aisle, Uh, just flag somebody down who's over there, they will pass one to you, take it with you, that's yours, we'd love for you to have it, we'd love to talk to you about what you read there, including what we're going to talk about together this morning, uh, which is a story, a very interesting story from a book full of interesting stories, the book of Judges. This week in our study of Judges, a third, fourth installment in our study of Judges, we get our first look at one of the judges or deliverers themselves, one of the guys from whom this book gets its name. It's not the first judge in the book. That honor goes to a guy named Othniel, But he only got about five verses to him, so we skipped him. And we're going to start with Ehud. That's the way we're going to do this series, uh, to, to avoid, to, to keep it to a manageable length. We've decided we're going to just focus on the major judges throughout the book, where they receive a, a longer extended treatment, more details for us to unpack together. And Ehud is the first one that that gets his, his uh, at least his fair share, if not more of it. It's a fascinating story. I think you'll see that it's even shocking as a place to begin. You know, the do you know the, uh, the dark comedy, or maybe you heard it called black comedy genre? you familiar with that? It's a kind of book or a movie that goes for laughs by making light of things that are really heavy. It's risky. Here's how Wikipedia defines black comedy, or dark comedy. It's a comic style that makes light of themes that are generally considered serious, or taboo. Think of some of the movies of Wes Anderson, or the Coen brothers, maybe an even better example. These movies are alienating. Some people love them, right? Can't get enough of this kind of humor. Other people just think that they're weird or sacrilegious or just wrong. No matter what, no matter what your response to it, no matter this, this genre, a lot of times, if you're watching one of these movies, reading one of these books, even if you love them, you'll find yourself kind of chuckling to yourself and saying, at some point, shaking your head, that's just wrong. It's a dangerous genre because it makes light of heavy things. That's what's so surprising about the story that we're going to consider this morning. This this story of Ehud. It would make a great Coen Brothers movie. It fits really well into the dark comedy genre. If you've not read it before, I think you're going to be surprised to see that the Bible includes something like this. It's violent. It's, shall we say, earthy. It's comedic in a way I hope comes out more clearly as we get into the details this morning. It might not be obvious on a first reading. We're going to try to bring some of that to light. But for all that it is, the story of Ehud isn't obviously encouraging. I just want to say that in case you're feeling something's wrong with you. And we read through this story and you don't know exactly what to do with it. In case you're wondering that, thinking you're just missing something, something's wrong with you. It isn't obviously encouraging on the surface of it. And in that sense, it's a great place to begin our study of these judges because it, it sets up the task that we face. Especially as Christians who believe that God speaks by his word, by all parts of it. As Christians who hear Jesus say and believe him when he says that everything points to him. This, this passage this morning is a good example of what we're going to face each week as we work through this study. And that is a task of taking something that's full of details that surprise us and that has a punchline at the end that isn't obviously helpful to us. And recognizing why God has put it here and how it points us to Jesus and gets us ready to believe in and love him more deeply than we do. Once we get into the details, I think you'll see it's a wonderful story, a story that for all its darkness helps us get ready for the the God whose work turns mourning into laughter. That's our task this morning. We're going to do it in three steps, beginning with the setup for the story, and I'm going to read the first several verses of of the Ehud story and ask you to stand with me as I do that in honor of God's word. I'm going to pick up reading in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, probably a reference to Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, Eighteen years. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The setup to this story is marked by surprises, or at least things that, that should surprise us. The first one, right out of the gate, is that Israel has again turned to evil. Away from the Lord of the Exodus and toward the gods of their neighbors. This is something the introductions to Judges have prepared us to expect. It's our first chance to see it in action. We're going to see it a lot more times. This despite what God had done to set them up in the land, to deliver them from bondage in Egypt, even in the verses immediately before ours, to deliver them from, through Othniel from those who were oppressing them. One after another after another example of God's goodness to his people, forgotten. In a sense, this is familiar to us because we looked at these introductions that told us to expect it, but it should still surprise us, given all that Israel has experienced, that once again they turn away from God. But here we are. And God's response is exactly what he said it would be. God strengthens Eglon and Moab, a neighboring people, and sends them to put Israel in their place. Israel has found, as our story picks up, what we have found, if we're honest with ourselves and about ourselves, that what seems so attractive at first, that maybe even tastes good going down, that it in turn, in time, always turns to poison. That instead of bringing pleasure or peace, we find only bondage and sorrow. Israel has found. That they've gotten exactly what they asked for. They wanted what their neighbors had. They sought after what their neighbors sought. And now for 18 years, God has made them their neighbors' slaves. Maybe they got what they asked for, but theirs was still a heartbreaking reality. And I think before we move into what happens next, we need to accept that and let it sink in. Israel may have gotten exactly what they asked for. May have gotten what they deserved. What they got was awful. The reality of those who live in an occupied territory is always the same. There's no restraint on the power of the occupiers. So that means there's no peace for those who are occupied. You never know what to expect. There's no control on what those who control your life can do. So you can't send your wife out to the market alone without fear that she may not return. When your crops come in and get stored, you can't rest in those because you know they might get taken. When your sons grow old enough to look threatening or worthy of conscription, you can't trust that they won't be taken out or taken over. There's no rest in an occupied land. You can't assume anything. It's unstable. And it's always very expensive. Your money is at the complete disposal of whoever rules and has the power to take it. That's Israel's reality. So they cried out to the Lord. And that brings us to the second surprise. The Lord actually hears them and raises up a deliverer. This is in verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Eighteen years is a long time to be subject. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Again, we've been expecting this because we've looked at these introductions, but it shouldn't not surprise us. The same God who punished them by his own hand will now remove their pain. And that brings us to the third surprise, that Ehud would be the one that he raises up. Verse 15 says, The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And every one of those descriptions is loaded. Loaded with details that are supposed to surprise you. He was the, of the tribe of Benjamin. The weakest of the tribes, perhaps. The only mention Benjamin has received so far is that they failed to drive out the Jebusites when they were trying to take Jerusalem. They were the reason that Israel's in this sorry mess in the first place, their failure. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah like Othniel had been. That's what you'd expect deliverance to rise up from. He was from Benjamin. He's left-handed. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of the right hand or right-handed. So there's irony here. But there's more than irony. You're also supposed to wonder, why is he telling me About this left-handed man. I mean, throughout the scriptures, the symbol of power had been the right hand. The strong right hand of the Lord that delivers his own. The strong right hand of one or another king who establishes Israel in power. The right hand is what's celebrated. But Ehud, he's left-handed. Why are you telling me that Ehud is left-handed? We're meant to notice that, be surprised by it, and to wonder. For answers, we have to move into the story. The story is all about craftiness and cluelessness. What you're going to find as we now move into these details is that it swings back and forth between Ehud and anybody who has anything to do with Moab. And when the when the focus is on Ehud and his actions and his plan, you're supposed to be impressed by how devious and crafty and treacherous and intelligent he is. And anytime it switches over to Moab or to Eglon, king of Moab, you're supposed to think, what was that? How did that guy ever become king of anything? You're supposed to see them as foolish. But so far, there's nothing funny at all about the story. The setup has been one of pain and oppression and slavery and despair. And what happens next isn't obviously funny either. Uh, You're going to see why it's comedic once we get a little further into it. But for now, let's just track with the details of the action. We're meant to wonder... How is God going to deliver through this man, this left-handed man named Ehud, this Benjaminite? How's he going to do that? And we're still wondering when Ehud starts out his career in verse 15. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. They sent tribute because they weren't expecting him to be their deliverer. Israel has no idea what God is planning. They send Ehud on a mission that symbolizes their subjection. They send him to pay off the man who's reigning over them to try to keep them happy. Status quo, it's a sign of not of their liberation, but of their subjection. Surely it's one of the most shameful and painful things a conquered and occupied, passionate countryman like him could ever be asked to do. Go pay off the man who's behind the pain of all the people you love most. He's sent on a status quo mission, but Ehud has a mission of his own in mind. And here's where the main contrast of the story start to emerge. The the contrast between Ehud's craftiness and Moab's cluelessness. Look at verse 16. Ehud, knowing he's about to head out on this tribute mission, he crafts for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. He's made a sword that's just the right shape, just the right size. He's bounded on his right thigh, partly for accessibility as a left-handed man, he'd need to be able to draw from that position, but partly because he knows. He knows that most guards, admitting someone to the court of their king, would frisk him. And that they'd be looking for a sword on the left thigh, where a right-handed person would be likely to draw. Ehud's making a risky move that these Moabite guards would be clueless enough to do their job halfway. He's betting his life on their sloppiness. Discovery would have meant death. And discovery wouldn't have been that hard. But his courage is rewarded and he makes it through. Verse 17 says he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Yep, it says that. (laughs) And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. What you can see so far is Ehud's craftiness unfolding a little bit layer by layer. This is no kamikaze mission. He's softening up Eglon. He's gotten himself access to this court and he's just delivered his tribute like everybody else. He looks peaceful now. He looks subject and broken. He looks weak. He restrains himself somehow. Surely it must have been difficult not to react in anger when he sees the opulence, even the corpulence, of this man who's fattened himself off of the proceeds, the products, the wealth, the livelihood of his own people. But he holds himself back, presents his tribute, and leaves. When he reaches the idols near Gilgal, verse 19 says, he turns back. He cuts loose those who had brought the tribute, whatever it was, would have taken lots of men to carry it. Cuts them loose. They're only going to be in his way. What he has to do now, he has to do alone. And he turns back and heads for the court of Eglon. Next, notice his message. I have a secret message for you, O king. He command, then the king commanded, Silence! The fat king is eating right out of his hand. In that time, there would have been high confidence in oracles of the gods. Eglon is intrigued. He thinks there's something to this. And his guards, I guess knowing what he was like, interpreted his command of silence as a command to leave the room, and they do it. They leave their king alone in the presence of an able-bodied man of a subject people. These are the shock troops. I mean, they're they're the king's bodyguards. Like the secret service, the best of the best. Surely, right? But they leave him alone, sitting there in his special inner room of some sort, Ehud came to him, verse 20 says, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. He ups the ante, and Eglon's eating right out of his hand. Eglon's so excited from this that he arises from his seat, verse 20 says, exposing his large but vulnerable belly. And then verse 21 takes us straight into the details all their earthy glory the left handed deliverer seizes his moment grabs his weapon and verse 21 says he had reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out yep yep That's what it says. (laughs) That is in the Bible. There's no special translation that smooths it out at all. It's told to have the effect that it just had on you. Then more craftiness and cluelessness ensues. Ehud immediately closes the doors. Verse 23. Goes out onto the porch, closes the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Somehow he escapes, we're not told exactly how, and once again his instincts are spot on. He figures, I guess, that Eglon's attendants won't just charge into the presence of their king behind locked doors, and they don't. When he had gone, the servants came, and verse 24 says, when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Relieving himself is how the ESV chose to translate it. The old KJV said, surely he covereth his feet. But the original language had no, no interest in guarding us from the reality of this situation. They thought he was going number two, <laughs> dropping the kids off at the pool, or going potty. He's going, he was making poo-poo. That's what they wanted you to think. They wanted you to laugh. The original author wanted you to laugh. (laughs) And in their cluelessness, these guards are frozen by the situation. It's not hard to imagine them, is it? We're told that they waited until they were embarrassed. It's not hard to imagine them outside the door, just standing there, waiting, shuffling their feet, awkwardly silent trying to avoid eye contact with one another, flipping through their Instagram feed or whatever, pretending not to notice, right? At some point, they just can't hold in their curiosity anymore. Somebody has the courage to ask somebody else. You think he's okay in there? What is going on in there? Should we ask? But they're, they're too embarrassed to do anything about it for a while. They didn't want to be the one who noticed, the despotic and violent ancient king who's indisposed in an inconvenient location. When they finally go in, it's way too late. They waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And meanwhile, Ehud had escaped, verse 26. And he passed beyond the idols, and he escaped to Syrah. While they were waiting, Ehud was running. And his end game was never just to kill Ehud. His end game was take off the head so that you kill the beast. He runs back to his homeland. He runs back to the, the heartland of those who would resist. And he spreads the word. When he arrived, verse 27 says, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he told the truth about what had happened. It wasn't him. Verse 28 says, he said to them, follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites, into your hand. God has done this. So they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan that separated Moab and their heartland territory from where they, where they were set up in Israel. Seized those fords so that they were trapped. They had them bottled up. And they wouldn't allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. And not a man escaped. Total victory. Total destruction. And for a time, Israel's unrest was over. Moab was subdued that day, verse 30 says, under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. That's the story. What's the punchline? What are we supposed to do with this story? That's the burning question, isn't it? It isn't obvious. I mean, I I hope that the details make more sense now that we haven't brought some of them to light. Hopefully the the power of the story, the craftsmanship behind the story comes through a little more clearly. But, But why is this story here? What are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to respond? We know that all the history of the Bible is intentional history. It's told to us, not just to entertain us, not just to educate us, but to help us relate better. To God. What are we supposed to do with this story? Who's the joke on after all? I want to get at that question one layer at a time. I want to start with what's most obvious on the surface of the text. What the author was most clearly and immediately going for. And kind of work our way towards longer range foreshadowing points that he wanted to make. Here's the first thing to note. Who's the joke on? Well, first, it's, it's a joke on Moab. And that's the really clear thing that comes through, especially once you learn some of the details and why they're there. Moab was Israel's enemy. It's sometimes oppressor throughout its history in the land. And this story is here to make Moab look ridiculous. It's been described by some commentators as a kind of literary cartoon, where they're described in these big, outlandish, exaggerated features. Think of Eglon as a cartoon character. Mocked. It's a mockery of Eglon's obesity and his gullibility and his blind path to the justice he deserved. For all his power grabbing, Eglon was only fattening himself for slaughter. It's a joke on Moab and everyone associated with them. His guards, what? They didn't find the sword? They left him all alone? They waited for how long outside the room before they wondered what was going on? it's, it's a story that's meant to make Israel laugh, to turn the pain of their slavery into the joy of vindication. And it's a warning, not so subtle warning, to anyone who would oppress God's people, that though you may look powerful for a time, in the end, the joke's on you. Second, it's a joke on Moab's gods, This one's not a prominent theme in the story. It's not as clear on the surface as the joke on Moab. But it's there. Both before and after Ehud does his work. Did you notice? Both before he does his work, in verse 19, and after he does his work, in verse 26, we're told that he passed by the idols Now, these idols were probably some sort of landmark, you know, maybe something that dis- distinguished the boundary between one territory and another. We aren't getting a lot of details about what they are, but they're idols. They're pagan statues that represented the powers that Moab and Israel, by following their lead, had looked to for protection and security. And both as Ehud begins to hatch his plan and as he completes it, he runs right under their noses. That's not an accidental detail. These gods were powerless to stop him. They are just as clueless as their worshipers. And it fits with what the Bible does, all through the Old Testament especially. It makes fun of idols who only have existence because somebody decided they were going to carve them up. And and it makes a mockery of the, the foolishness of thinking that something you make with your own hands will have any power to deliver you. It's a mockery of idolatry in general. God is committed to exposing all of our idols, friends, material ones and otherwise, and it's best if we join Him and make war on them ourselves before they get exposed like Moab's did. Then it's a joke on Israel. Moving one layer deeper, it's a joke on Moab. joke on Moab's gods, but If you're reading it right, I think you've got to conclude it's also, underneath it all, a joke on Israel. What I mean by that is that I think you're supposed to be wondering, as you go through all these details about the cluelessness of Moab and the helplessness of Moab's God, you're supposed to be wondering, how in the world does a people like this conquer anybody? And what does it say about Israel? Israel. That they were helplessly subject to a people like this. What it says, as one commentator put it, is that their sins had reduced them under God's judgment to a people that were less than Moabites. And that's pretty low. They had trusted what was powerless to save them and they had paid the price. Friends, God's judgment here in this story and in all of history, it's not capricious, it's not arbitrary. It is meant to expose the folly of Israel's trade and of all of us who would trade in the fountain of living waters for cisterns that can't even hold water that you put in it. These stories are all at root stories about the relationship between God and Israel. Moab and Eglon and Ehud, these are all just props in a story that's about Israel and God and ultimately about us and how we'll relate to the God who made us. It's a warning. But how is God involved? What does it mean for God that he would be involved in a story like this one? What does it teach us about him, about what we should expect from him? I mean, there's lots not to like in this story. Even Ehud as a hero is not one that's celebrated by the story in all of his actions. What he did was treacherous. It was deceitful. It would have been a huge violation of expectations for honorable conduct in the ancient world. Essentially a violation of a treaty to pay tribute with one hand and gut somebody with another. Ehud is not celebrated in all that he does. The story is not endorsing everything that he chose to do. What is God's role? What do we see about him from this earthly story? I think there's one thing that it shows us very clearly that is that the Bible is not a sanitized book, and God is not a sanitized God. He is holy. Yes, the Bible is clear about that. He does exist on a plane that is higher than ours. So holy that in his own essence he can't even look on sin, the Old Testament tells us. He's holy. But by his own initiative, driven by his own love, rooted in his character and in nothing else, this holy God has bound himself to people who are very much bound to this earth. And in his love for them, he enters their world. That's what he does. And he dirties his own hands to set them free. God is not a God unwilling to insert himself into even the foolishness of those that he loves. He enters the mess of the lives of his people and he does that to turn mourning into laughter. In this sense, friends, that's a big picture of what this tells us about God. In this sense, this story, even in all of its earthiness, even in its dark comedy, prepares us for the ultimate example of God inserting himself in the earthbound messiness of the people that he loves to bring them freedom. Freedom. This story is an echo of the story of the cross. In the coming of Jesus, the New Testament tells us God himself took on a body like ours. A body that did all the demeaning, undignified things that our bodies do. He had all the same fluids and all the same processes. He wasn't isolated from its messiness. And in his life, he marched unwaveringly with every step towards a story in which he would be the subject of someone else's dark comedy. At the cross, Jesus was made a mockery. The powers that be took something serious and made it a joke. They wrapped him in purple like a king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They hung a sign over him that said, King of the Jews. So people would laugh when they saw it. The story of the cross is a story full of satire and mockery. And in this story, Jesus, God himself, Was always the laughing stock. Willingly. For a time. But things are not always what they seem. And while he was making himself. The mockery of the powers that be. Underneath it all. He was making a mockery. Of the powers that would rule over all. Disarming them. Because he, like Ehud, looked weak at the time, didn't he? He looked submissive. He looked broken by the powers that be. He looked harmless. But Jesus is working his own agenda the whole time. Jesus is taking in his own body the punishment that he knew his people deserved to pay. He is swallowing up death's power. And by his own death, Hebrews 2 tells us, he is destroying the one who had the power of death. What Hebrews 2 tells us, by by framing Jesus' death that way, what it's pointing to is that the one who holds the power of death, the evil one, he reached too far when he reached for Jesus. He looked at Jesus, so weak, so broken. And he's chuckling to himself. He thinks he's finally done it. He's finally conquered the one that he's been struggling against from the beginning. And Jesus just lets him think that. And then as he takes on all the pain that we should have experienced, as he drinks down God's just judgment and even to the death experiences all of that wrath, the whole time he knows he's about to flip the script. And in his resurrection... We learn that the joke all along has not been on him, but on Satan. The evil one who wants all of you dead. God is not a God who stands above our mess. He's a God who enters into it and he does it with a sense of humor. A gloriously sanctified sense of humor. Where he is putting to shame the rulers and the principalities and the powers. He is openly putting them to shame. And Ehud just points the way. God has promised to overthrow all tyranny. Every usurper. From nearly the very beginning of the Bible story, we've heard the promise that one day, the evil one would have his head crushed. By the seed of the woman. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that promise has come true. Father, I pray that through this story, as strange, as earthy, as funny as it is, you would help us to love the story of all stories more deeply. That we would look to Jesus, putting to shame those who seem so powerful and invincible, and have hope for what He can do even in our lives while we wait for the kingdom He's promised us. Help us to trust You as our Deliverer now. Help us to live for the kingdom You've promised to bring in. And help us to be shaped by Your Word even when it isn't what we expect. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.